0: Business leaders and academics that write thought provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Peter High, author of Getting Nimble. Peter, welcome. Well, Mark, thank you for having me. So it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, and, and I was just telling Peter, he's my ninth show. I have one, one next Wednesday, next Friday. We'll hit 100 shows. Hard to believe um, that. Congratulations. It will be 100 shows. So, Peter, let's start off with you just telling us, you know, a little bit about yourself before we start getting into the book.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate you asking. So, I uh, for the past 21 years have run a firm I founded uh, called Meta Strategy. I spend a lot of time with people who run technology and digital uh, for large. Uh, private sector organizations, multi-billion-dollar companies, and uh, it's been a very interesting couple of decades, uh, given the rise and prominence of technology and digital, basically across all industries. And uh, so, so it's been been very fascinating, frankly, to be uh, a part of that conversation and driving some of that change in our own way. Um, I also do a fair amount of writing. I've written three books. You were kind enough to mention my third, Getting to Nimble, uh, which came out a few months ago. Uh, I'm a Forbes columnist for the past 10 years, a podcaster, uh, the Technovation podcast with Peter High uh, for the past 13, and um, and spent a lot of time speaking with uh, in various forums that bring together people from across the tech ecosystem.
0: Well, what do you write about for Forbes? A
1: lot of it is basically enterprise technology. Uh, so whether it's, again, those same digital and technology leaders, the buyers of, uh, of uh, enterprise technology and how the evolution of tech is happening across a variety of different industries, sometimes profiling individuals, sometimes talking about trends that are on the rise or the fall for that matter. And, uh, but, but basically writing and pontificating about, uh, about the advances in technology.
0: I've got to tell you, it's, a, it, it's been a super interesting book, that's for sure. And uh, as I mentioned, we have listeners that come in from 57 countries, uh, listen to this show. And uh, today I've seen them from South Africa, Ireland, Chile, all over. So why did you write this particular book?
1: Uh, Well, so one of the really fascinating aspects of, again, having been a couple of decades now, uh, 25 years actually, uh, outside of my firm and inside of my firm, uh, working within the tech space, seeing the evolution of it, its rise in prominence, the increasing strategic nature of it, but very importantly, Mark, the pace of change. Um, if you go back, you know, even sixty years, uh, a company that was on the S and P five hundred at that time would likely stay on the S and P five hundred for uh, between fifty and sixty years. Fast forward to today, and the average tenure of a company on the S and P five hundred is fifteen. Wow! And that is just remarkable if you think about that—the creative destruction that that suggests on the one hand, but also, frankly, the extraordinarily rapid pace with which companies can scale their operations to compete with the old behemoths. And that that degree of dynamism means especially those organizations born before the digital age, although increasingly those born since the mid-90s, need to really be thinking about an orientation towards nimbleness. And what I mean by that is uh developing companies and developing uh, people who are oriented this way, processes, technologies, the broader ecosystem, even the strategies that you pursue to be able to seize opportunity as it presents itself, but also to stave off issues as they present themselves, as each of those will be coming a lot faster than in the past. You know, I, I mentioned early in the book that uh, this is the fastest that the pace of business has ever been, and yet it's the slowest it will be from this point forward. So if you believe that hypothesis, uh, which I, I truly do, uh, that means that nimbleness becomes a key source of differentiation.
0: So why do you say that, uh, that it's going to become also the slowest?
1: Well, so it's only going to get faster, in other words. So, so, oh, so I a year okay. from now will be faster than it is today, just as oh, today yeah. is faster than last year. So yeah. yes, it's fa- to this point, it's the fastest it will be, and, but uh, it is continuing
0: to accelerate. Yeah, it's scary uh, how fast everything <laughs> is going. So I, I love in your book. And by the way, it's a fabulous book. And Thank you. Yeah, again, uh, one that probably requires people to read it a couple of times to absorb everything. And General Stanley McChrystal, whom I'm a big fan of, wrote the forward, which is a, I think is a huge coup uh, to get somebody like that to think enough of you that he would do this and what you wrote. Why did you select him? And what did you learn from him?
1: Yeah, thank 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 you for your kind words. First of all, Mark, somebody who reads as many books and interacts with so many authors, it means a lot coming from you that you 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 uh, th- thought enough of uh, my book to to note that. So I, I've had the g- great good fortune of getting to know General McChrystal since early in his private sector career. We both were both based here in the D.C. area and have gotten together on on a, on a few different occasions. He's gone on the record with me several times, and I was an enormous fan of Team of Teams, one of his early books, I believe, his second, if I recall correctly, and um. The ideas behind that book, which I, I leverage a bit in my, my chapter about process and process innovation, um, I think are really profound. Uh, you know, He talks about how did, 100 years ago, if you went to West Point or Annapolis and, and trained to become uh, a military uh, man or woman, uh, what you practiced, the, 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 the way in which you operated in your job many decades later, if you retired from the military, let's say in your 50s or 60s, what you studied back at your academy would still apply to a large extent. Of course, there were innovations, and of course, there were some changes. But there was a lot that would still. There were threads that would be pulled through that entire experience. And he raised uh, the point that today, that dynamism in the military setting is so dramatic that you, you know, not long after you leave the academies, what you've learned may be largely irrelevant, or at least substantially changed. Let's say. And it's been fascinating. I, I, I'm not uh, of the military uh, like he is, but it's been so. I, I've certainly studied a lot of military history, since so much of strategy, even a, a field that I operate in, um, it, the origins of it come from military history. And so I've always been fascinated about the how much is borrowed and how much rhymes between how militaries operate and how companies operate uh, in terms of strategy or structure, you know, getting things done, et cetera, and. His philosophy around the need for greater dynamism really speaks uh, um, volumes to the same kinds of themes that I pursue in this book. And that's one of the reasons why we get on so well is I think we're oriented comparably, at least uh, in terms of that that uh, that thought process about the the need to, in my, my words, to operate a, a nimble organization because of that dynamism. The second thing that I'll mention that I think is a really key lesson that he shared with me that I found so profound was... Um, you know, military leaders like business leaders, uh, you know, a general or a CEO, each of those people uh, traditionally are thought of and, in fact, operated as sort of, uh, you know, masters above a chessboard. That yes. they set a plan and then they move the pieces around. You, my direct report or my direct report's direct report, do as I say and go off and, and, and uh, put this plan in place. And he has made the point that in a military setting and now as he works a lot in the private sector as well, that increasingly you need to go from chess master to gardener. And what that means is you need to plant seeds in a variety of different places. You need to provide them nourishment And then you need to let them go off and flourish and provide, in this case now, translating to the people who work for you, provide them enough context as to what the North Star is, where you're headed from a strategy perspective, but recognizing, especially if yours is a large and complex organization, they need to have some liberty to operate on their own. They will know more about what's happening in the field than you, the chess master back at headquarters, could possibly know. Um, And so giving them uh, that liberty, empowering them, of course, giving them the appropriate insights as to the direction that, generally speaking, your goal but 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 empowering them to take make a lot of decisions based upon what they're seeing in the field, however the field translates into your organization.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's a book and I mentioned uh, last week uh, to another author that I love called Startup Nation. And it talks about the Israeli military and that everything, all the decisions are made at the point of the spear, not in the back. And that they said that the reason they keep uh, kept beating the Egyptians was because by the time the Egyptians got the order, they had moved. But their guys at the front were making the decisions and that you would see generals bringing cups of coffee um, at lunch to other soldiers. That the job of the general was to support the people at the front, not the other way around. And I thought the other thing I think is interesting is uh, General McChrystal is a Ph.D. And most of all of our generals now are a minimum master's degrees. But most all of them, when you take a look at their academic background, Most all of them have PhDs, which is a huge difference than what we saw in Vietnam, World War I, and World War II, the the, the amount of intelligence of running a large organization and the open mindedness that it takes, right? Uh, And you talk essentially a lot about that in the book about what you need to do to run these nimble organizations. I'd like you to define what's nimble to you. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is this, uh, this ability, Mark, to to pivot rapidly. I, let me tell you a quick story that I tell in the book uh, to, to, to highlight the, the notion behind this. Um, several years ago, I was interviewing the chief information officer and technology officer, uh, two titles, one man, uh, Shamim Mohammed from CarMax in Richmond, Virginia, where they're headquartered. And I was interviewing for my podcast, in fact. And I concluded the podcast, as I often do mine, with a question about trends. Uh, you know, What trends excite you as you look to the future? And he offered an anecdote about uh, Um, about blockchain, as I recall. He also said something about artificial intelligence and its application back to an organization like CarMax. But he concluded his remarks by saying, at the end of the day, the pace of change is so dramatic today that if I look two or three years out into the future, the thing that might be the top priority, the top trend for us to leverage, maybe something you and I can't even name today. And that's pretty profound if you think about it. So yeah. what what that means is, here I'm paraphrasing him, though though I think fairly accurately, what I need to do is create an organization that's nimble, that can seize the opportunity as it presents itself, not, not recognize it, and then you know, wait months and months and months to marshal the resources and the plans in order to execute. But also, frankly, unfortunately, this is the lot of, of all uh, you know corp- corporations, also bear in mind the tremendous risks that you need to mitigate uh, in the form of cybersecurity attacks, for example. Those will also be company, uh, uh, coming at you uh, without any notice. And, and so also staving off danger uh, requires a lot of nimbleness as well. And so really, it's an orientation towards uh, and a familiarity with change. I talked briefly in the book about uh, a friend of mine, Ben Fried, who for uh, 13 or so years has been the chief information officer of Google. And uh, he and I were at a conference back when you could safely be at conferences in person in Mexico together, each of us speaking at this conference. And I, I asked him, you know, how is Google... At that point, he's probably nine years or 10 years into his tenure, grown tremendously, you can only imagine, right, during the course of that tenure. How do you remain innovative and entrepreneurial when you're a definitive behemoth at this point, at a point at which organizations oftentimes become so large that they become unwieldy? And he said, the secret sauce is we make change of core competence. That we orient our hires towards people who have a you know a familiarity with and and even frankly a desire for change and can and seek that out or, or are not intimidated by it. Uh, you know they have the processes, agile processes. Uh, to, to, to capture opportunities more readily as they present themselves, as well as stave off issues, as I was mentioning before. They also have an orientation towards continuing to modernize their practices, modernize their technology, not rest on the laurels of or, or overly complicate uh, things simply by letting them kind of ossify or calcify uh, as a result of not recognizing when, when a, a practice or a technology is, is past its shelf life. Um, so these are, I think, are practices that all of us ought to employ because, of course, change is not something that becomes natural for us. We crave routine. Um, but but if you if you uh, don't seek or don't recognize the necessity for continued change, well, then you you know, you have the, the, the possibility of some rather
0: dire consequences for the business you're a part of. Uh, one of the hardest parts for large organizations is the finance people saying, do you know how much money we've sunk into this? <laughs> And now you tell me that it's no good. We just only got two, three years of write-offs on this thing. So um, you, uh, this question came up to me. What, what, what are the five themes you suggest companies work on to compete? And why those particular five?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for mentioning them. So the five are, to define them, people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And so um, none of those are terms I invented, of course. <laughs> All of them hopefully have some resonance with uh, folks who are, who are listening and watching today. Uh, and, but the idea is each of them are essential. Um, you know the people are are you, the people that are part of your company are the foundation. You are only as good as the people you have. You can have world class technology and world class processes if you don't have great people who are part of your team. All of that is is for naught. Uh, you will have suboptimal results if you do if you have a suboptimal team. And so ha- seeking a team that has the skills for the future, that has this orientation towards change, uh, that has an innovative mindset, these become really important. That that frankly also has a learning a nimbleness associated with them, where they're seeking the skills of tomorrow as opposed to resting on the laurels of what they learned in, in, at university or, or the experiences they've had early in their career as, as a result of the, 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 the necessity that dynamism uh, pushes us all to continue to innovate from that perspective. Likewise, process-wise, you know, becoming much more uh, uh, leveraging processes that will help us uh, become uh, uh, faster, uh, more quickly seek and, and, and accomplish uh, what it is that we're we're uh, hoping to do in projects or products that we're developing, uh, you know these these become much more important as well. Technology wise, leveraging a modern tech stack that is itself more flexible, that can scale up and back as necessary that hopefully also has security to a larger extent baked into, uh, baked into it as well. Um, the ecosystems, I make the point in the book that we uh, competition is now less company to company and more ecosystem to ecosystem. And so who you bring to the party becomes a really essential point as to how successful you're going to be. Um, you know, who are the suppliers? Who's, who are you forging joint ventures with? Who are the you know, managed services providers? Just to name three examples of an ecosystem. And I talk about peers. I talk about leveraging the venture capital community. I talk about leveraging, you know, Which strategic venture partners. Yeah. Perfect, yeah. wonderful. I look forward to doing so. And then the last mm-hmm. uh, category, the last of the five, um, yeah, Mark, is strategy that uh, you need to have. Despite that dynamism, you still need to understand and communicate effectively to your entire organization what True North is. Where are we all going? Yes, there, you know, we will change that as time goes on based upon the realities of what we face. But having that great plan, well-articulated, translating it into the various divisions of the organization, translating it through to data strategy and those sorts of things. These become the, the essential ingredients, I, I believe, the five levers to pull uh, in order to be part of the the successful organizations, the ones that go past that fifteen years in the S and P five hundred, I referenced before, to, to longer pathways towards value creation.
0: And we have a question from the audience: Where does data fit into that model? Often forgotten, but critical in all five you mentioned.
1: Yes, exactly. In some ways, I, you know, I talk about data strategy in the fifth element, um, as I just alluded to at the end. Uh, Data strategy becomes a really critical aspect of this. But but uh, your, your your listener certainly uh is a savvy point that that he or she makes, makes that it really is peppered throughout everything that we talk about. If you think about the period of pandemic, uh we talk about a dynamic situation where there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty, at least in our lifetime, sort of unprecedented, needless to say. Data was our friend. Uh, I had a great uh, conversation with the CEO of a multi-billion dollar uh, company a number of months ago. This is probably four or five months into the pandemic. So this would be in 2020. And we were just talking about uh, just the the sort of chaos (laughs) that the pandemic had wrought. And he said, You know, what's so interesting is me, I've been a CEO multiple times over, he said to me, again, paraphrasing relatively tightly here. Uh, and he said, I, I'm hired as a CEO because I've got a great gut. I've got a lot of experience. And when I'm faced with an issue, I have uh, points of reference from my past that I can leverage and draw upon in order to steer this organization appropriately. When you truly get to unprecedented situations where there is so much that has changed, actually your gut becomes your enemy. And at that point, data needs to be your friend. Uh, Data is what helps you through. And so data, here getting back to to your listeners, great point. Uh, imbued in everything that I described D- data in terms of how well your team is doing uh you know their their, their health uh, first and foremost but also of course their productivity and you know how are we doing as a team our processes monitoring that with data as well the technologies you know what, what how well are we doing from a tech perspective how reliable is it how secure is it all these sorts of things you know data is part of all in terms of our operations our interactions with our customers what, you know what is selling what is not uh how effective is our operation how, or not as the case may be giving us the Power, they, uh, therefore, to course correct as time goes on, based upon what those tea leaves are telling us through that process. So, yes, an, a critical element that only becomes all the more critical. Uh, uh, and if I may, just uh, do a quick plug. I do, yeah. I've done. Five courses uh, as part of LinkedIn Learning. My latest in December uh, just came out on data strategy. This is an area that a lot of organizations are very immature on. Everyone understands the sanctity of it, but having a game plan associated with data strategy becomes very important, especially in this day and age. And so, uh, my, uh, my contribution is to so some of the things that companies might think about you can
0: find on LinkedIn Learning. I think the government's done a really poor job during this whole COVID period of explaining to people that the data is constantly changing the recommendations being made by the government. And as we keep learning more and more uh, about uh, each of these levels or types of COVID, that changes the recommendations and the mask and everything else. So people have to realize that data is ongoing and, and constantly changing how we view things, right? I mean, Like the people get frustrated and go, oh, my God, one minute they're telling us this, the next minute they're telling us that. Yeah, because as more data comes in, the picture becomes clearer to them. And some parts of it becomes even a little bit fuzzier because they thought they knew something, but now they realize they don't. Right. I mean, and that happens on all facets of business
1: yeah it's really true it's a, it's a great point you make mark and i mean especially again in a period where there is so much that is out of our control the exogenous factors that determine whether or not we are going to be successful as a society but again especially with a health crisis that is ever evolving with new variants that are you know di- differing levels of of uh uh, virulence, uh, you know, all of this is stuff that we need to react to. It's not like we can take command of it. And that's very frustrating, right? It feels like we're out of control, but especially in those situations to echo the great points you've just made, you know, it's so much, it's, it's so important for us to call upon data as a means to understand how is this evolving and use that, you know, with, with, uh, sort of a, a, uh, uh, trying to take the passion out of this and actually, you know, getting into the heart of, of what that data is telling us to help us with the decisions we might make.
0: You gave the example of Capital One, my personal credit card and choice for many years, switching from off-the-shelf or outsourced to developing its own special tech sauce. Why is this smart, and how big do you have to be for that to make sense?
1: Yeah, I don't know that you necessarily have to be so big to take the last part of your question first, Mark. I think that increasingly, organizations need to uh, develop a part of their company, at least, that can help create. Now, granted, look—if you—if you're a you know five-person shop, then perhaps it's best. As in, in speaking of my ecosystem point before, uh, bring in partners that are good at some things that you are not yet good at. Um, and, and by the way, whether you're five people or five hundred thousand people, that's the whole notion of the ecosystem. Is if for some things that we need, we need to have great partners who are going to deliver those things for us because it's not strategic for us. But increasingly, there, there was a book. Nick Carr, a guy who uh, used to work at. Uh, um, Harvard Business Review wrote a, an HBR article, uh, which, which was called um, IT Doesn't Matter. He, he wrote a book which was only slightly more modestly uh, put, Does IT Matter? In both those cases, he concluded no. This was uh, in the mid part of the, of the first decade of, of this century. Uh, so 15, 16 years ago, if I recall correctly. And a lot of people bought that logic. I'm oversimplifying the message there. I mean, it's pretty yeah, clear sure. for the titles, but, but, but uh, the whole idea was IT is increasingly becoming commoditized. And so a lot of people bought that logic. And then the, the, the chaos of, of the crisis in 08 made it very easy to buy the further logic that let's, ask, let's just outsource a lot of this stuff. That's going to be a cheaper pathway to get out of the part of our organization that, frankly, I don't really understand very well. Let's get people who understand technology run that for us. And so many companies were giving away the keys to the castle as a result of that. That, yes, of course, outsourcing is a, a critical weapon in the arsenal of any organization, but giving too much away means that all of a sudden you have less flexibility. You're not driving some of the things that are most important. So, Capital One's a great example, and there are many of them. I talk about the Washington Post, a very different kind of company yeah. uh, that also had a similar orientation of going from a traditional you know, IT organization order taking to some extent, uh, it's you much more a driver of innovation, of of creating the technology uh, in the most strategic areas of the company to help create differentiating factors uh, for the organization and pathways for new new sources of revenue, new product areas, and so on. This becomes, I think, a really important aspect of how companies need to be thinking about the way in which they manage technology.
0: I think anytime you do any innovation in house you learn so many things that are not even related to what you're actually doing. And then you say, gosh, that's like a whole new business idea for us. Where if you didn't do that and you're sticking to the same thing, like the post is just assuming, hey, we just provide content. That's all they look at there and they're stuck in a rut. In fact, they don't even see new content they could develop because of that, right? Great point.
1: Great point. I absolutely agree with you.
0: So how important is cross-functional collaboration?
1: Uh, critically important Mark. this is a, I, I'm glad you raised this topic because I think it's really one of the important threads through my book is the importance of cl- greater level of, of correct collaboration across the typical silos of a company. look, look I, I don't think the silos are ever going to go away. You need people with depth of experience in finance and in operations and in technology and in you know the various uh, parts of an organization, different product areas and service areas of the company, etc. Those need to remain and you need people that have degrees in those areas and experiences across multiple companies in those areas as well. But the the silos, if they're not going to go away, they need to become more permeable. We need to have people that are straying across those, either for for, for you know periods of time, or maybe for you know years abroad, so to say, uh, figuratively speaking. Um, somebody from IT going into the marketing division and getting to know that discipline to a greater extent, such that they've got truly have a foot in both those worlds and can innovate to a greater extent. Look, so much of the of innovation today is at the intersection of disciplines. It is, you know, let's say technology and marketing. To use that same example I gave a moment ago, that so much of what marketing needs to do from an innovation perspective might be delivered with a very various kinds of technology, whether it's better uh, um, synthesis of and use of data, uh, through to the way in which marketing messages are delivered, perhaps through digital channels. Just to take a couple of of obvious examples, but I think powerful ones at the intersection of IT and marketing. So I think that organizations need to forge. These pathways and p- partnerships and collaborations across these silos to a much greater extent, and find people, frankly, who have an interest in or in a background in perhaps multiple disciplines. Uh, you know, as I've mentioned through the conversation, my area of focus is largely on the tech and digital parts of these big companies. But you know, those people in those organizations have a lot to say and a great opportunity to collaborate in unusual ways with leaders uh, across the entire organization. And so finding ways to forge those pathways, to to brainstorm and come up with new ideas at the intersections of those disciplines, that's where so much of the value is today. And so I think that, you know, we need to rethink the way in which we organize our teams accordingly.
0: Now, I I think this is an important question. I'll be interested in your answer, which is how do you get organizations comfortable with change? Because most people who are attracted, especially to larger organizations, They like the day-to-day routine never changing for them and the idea of change, even for people like they're worried about losing their power within their organization. Uh, How do you get people comfortable with change?
1: It's 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 a a very interesting question mark, and you know I think it's it's one part uh, uh, showing the opportunities that come with change, but it's also frankly it has to be one part um, uh, identifying the risks in not doing so. One of my favorite stories that I tell in the book is the company on the S and P five hundred. I'm raising the S and P five hundred a lot in this conversation, but the top performing stock of the S and P five hundred in the 1980s was Circuit City. Uh, Only went public in 84. In less than six years, it returned over 8,000% of those who participated in the IPO in six years and a retailer in the 1980s. This is really kind of in the early stages of just-in-time inventories. The, the back of the house was as big as the front of the house for, for the need to have a lot of extra supplies associated with this. And through, I'll I'll, I'll spare you the, the, the greatest detail, they can find it in the book, of course, but uh, it, through much better customer experience, Circuit City just soared like you can't believe. In the 1990s, they used the windfall and continued success to found a number of companies. One of them is CarMax, which I mentioned today already. Um, that Car- Max was actually born out of, of Circuit City. I didn't know to, that today, today a great a great a continued going concern, uh, tens of billions of dollars of revenue. In 2001, Circuit City is featured in Jim Collins classic Good to Great, one of a you know dozen or 15 companies that are profiled that have gone from good performance to definitively great performance. That's an 01. 2001, that book is written 2009, the company is liquidated right so and this is not a very good company this is the best company of a decade across any industry at least as judged by the performance in their stock and so and that as i say continued with great performance through to the point of being included in this book just 8 years before that liquidation so it's important to remember these stories as well to understand that those companies that were once phenomenal that created you know across any industry practices that were really leading and worth emulating that if you, even those organizations have a tendency to, to, to sort of believe their own press perhaps and 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 crave that routine to an extent where they can't get out of their own way, to, to to make the change that's necessary, given given the tectonic shifts that are always happening across industries. So I think we need to hear those stories as well to understand what can what can happen to us if we don't if we're not willing to change. In addition to the many stories of, of uh, organizations that have done so and have succeeded tremendously, perhaps after coming through. I tell the stories of, story of Domino's Pizza, for example, that they were not on the verge of going away, but they were you know kind of languishing in terms of their performance. And through a radical uh, transformation, which included a technology transformation, they, they were one of the best stocks. They have been one of the best stocks of the past uh, dozen years or so, uh, and, and best performing companies as a result of that. So, you know, it's important to understand both of these kinds of examples, I think, to, uh, to, to make the case for the need to, to become a lot more comfortable with change.
0: Well, I think you learn way more from the companies who uh, end up in the graveyard than you ever learn from the success stories. Like we all do, right? Like we, you know, we wonder why did that was so successful. But when it comes to failure, boy, you can see all the mistakes uh, that you made and how you need to avoid those. And hence why the mistakes still happen. You know, you look at the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years, and yet we worry about the United States lasting till tomorrow, right? Because of what goes on in this country. Why do year long projects need to be reevaluated? I thought that was an interesting comment.
1: Yeah, I, there there have been a tendency in so many, especially larger organizations to have enormous projects, ones that are, whether it's like, uh, you know, replacing your ERP or, or some major technology in your organization to, you know, major, major campaigns or product launches. We, we, we should still do big and audacious uh, work. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's critically important that along the way, again, given the pace of change and the fickleness of customers and the degree to which tastes change and so on, that we have a, a constant source of validation along the way. And so even for something that would naturally come across as a year-long or even more uh, body of work, cutting that up into pieces where you have regular validation with the intended audience user of what it is you're developing, whether that's inside your company or your customers... Uh, becomes that much more critical. And, and, And Mark, you already referenced it, the sunk cost fallacy, that we need to make sure that just because you've spent a million bucks on this, that don't don't, spell, don't spend uh, a million and one if in fact it's something that's not going to, to derive the value that you anticipated. So taking a hard and critical look along the way as well to say, look, we thought this was going to be of tremendous value as we validate it with the very people who would be providing that revenue uh, that we anticipated, if, if they're yawning, well, let's move on to something else. Let's not uh, spend good dollar after bad. And so I think an increased orientation towards uh, that that this is one of the foundations of agile development by the way is in, is involving the intended audience, the intended user of what it is you're developing through all the iterations to get that feedback critically, which helps you modify things towards greater levels of value, new bells and whistles you might add to that product that you're developing, for example, or as I mentioned before, uh, perhaps canceling it because uh, the more the more you get delve into it with customers they're saying, you know what I, I I guess I saw the need before I don't anymore because something else I'm now using something else that is, is providing the value I anticipated, for example. so Much more important to to think of it in an iterative iterative fashion, uh, Mark, rather than a monolithic fashion.
0: Rob Carter, CIO of FedEx, which I think he's a good friend of yours as well, right? Indeed. Rob Rob Carter said, it dawned on me that technology was the source of our success, would be the source of our downfall if we didn't change. What do you mean by that and how complicated is that for large, let alone medium-sized companies, And does that uh, spell opportunity for entrepreneurial technology providers?
1: Absolutely, it does. Yeah, Mark, thank you. This is one of my favorite stories, actually. Rob is really one of the great technologists across any company. I've gotten to know uh, Fred Smith, the founder and still chairman and CEO of, of FedEx as well. And he says there's not a strategic uh, decision made in this company that doesn't go through Rob. That's how important he is to the decision set processes. He's been he's had an extraordinarily long tenure, especially for a technology executive. It's now past two decades, and you can imagine just just think, Mark, for a moment, across two decades, the things that were so innovative 20 years ago that he implemented, you know, m- many of those things today have been surpassed, right, that there's a new way of doing that thing. Uh, and if if the thing that he was proud of 20 years ago, if he were so proud of it that he can't let it go, that's his baby and it's still beautiful and he can't be convinced otherwise, then he would be putting his company in a perilous position, and I find this always especially fascinating. Mark with with leaders who had long tenures that they go through these cycles, that they go through. You know, gosh, I helped introduce this thing that was an enormous differentiator for us. But having the humility to say, look, if I if I'm so proud of that that I can't shut it down, that I can't recognize something that is better in the marketplace or that we might develop ourselves. If I'm not. Uh, to borrow from Andy Grove of Intel, if we're not our own best competitor, that is to say, willing to cannibalize those things that we yeah. do well before the entrepreneur that you just referenced a moment ago does so on our behalf. Well then, then somebody is going to eat our lunch eventually. And, it, and in fact it's a, you know the very easy answer to your question is yes, it spells tremendous opportunity for tr- entrepreneurs. One of the reason why frankly so many venture backed organizations can start to, you know, eat away at slices of big companies businesses because those big businesses can't get out of their own way or don't see that there's a new way of doing things that might seem obvious. For an organization that can pivot so rapidly towards those opportunities that are nimble enough indeed and they're thinking in their practices to do so. So what I have found fascinating and always have about Rob's uh, orientation is that he is willing to be humble enough to say, yes, this thing that my team and I introduced 10 years ago was world-class definitively and it is no longer. And so we need to make sure that we are setting up a much better foundation for the future and retiring those things and eliminating redundancies and and in the process de-risking our organization in so doing and developing technology and practices and skills that are going to scale us uh, for for the next 20 years and beyond.
0: I I kind of think uh, why this happens to companies is that the CEO, maybe even the top people lose, lose their intellectual curiosity. And once you start you know, kind of not being interested in in the newest things that are happening and seeing how that fits into your thing, you're on a quick slide downhill. So I kind of think that they get so big that they start making all these grand speeches and they start believing their own bullshit uh, and then don't don't have the intellectual interest to see the changes themselves. Um, What is enterprise architecture and why is it important? And it seems to be associated with large entities, but how does it impact even entrepreneurial companies?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. So um, enterprise architecture, sometimes referred to uh, by the acronym EA, is especially for larger organizations, a critical discipline in its its simplest uh, form of helping you understand how all the parts and pieces that you are managing from a technology perspective, whether that's like physical technology, Uh, You know, software, the data that flows through it, how all that fits together in a large organization, especially you can imagine the complexity of that is such that very few people actually understand how does this all fit together, what's connected to what, and, uh, you know, if there's an issue with one part of our domain, what else is that going to impact. Moreover, it's one of the reasons uh, bad hygiene associated with enterprise architecture or a lack a lack of the discipline at all would also lead to c- scenarios that so many organizations have where they have this Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of, of various uh, parts of the tech landscape, which again is, is bad for so many reasons. It's more costly than it should be, it is more complex. Uh, it, it opens up a greater aperture to bad actors uh, to find their way in. Uh, it also means that the data that's flowing through that is probably in multiple sources, and they're not therefore not speaking together uh, in a way that's going to add the most uh, the best value for your organization. Just to name a few, I could go on, but those are I think some of the some of the uh, most critical aspects of this. And so think of it again in its in its simplest form mark as a way of understanding what do we have today and every time we are suggesting a change going back to this set of practices to say okay we're introducing this new technology, what does that render redundant? And what's the plan, therefore, to retire that, to get it completely off of our books because of this thing that we're replacing? If we're going to introduce this, let's commit uh, and let's let's try wherever we can. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, there may be some scenarios because of a diversity of your businesses that you would have multiple versions of of a certain kind of technology, but at least having a philosophical point of, of minimizing that wherever you can and, and where possible getting it down to a single a single technology where you can as well. Uh, now to use the second part of your question mark, I think there are uh, applications and implications for even mid-sized or smaller organizations as well. No, you may not have a full EA department staffed with you know ten, dozens of people who are going to be going to be helping you with those practices, but I you know. Having worked with a great number of organizations that scaled very rapidly to let's say a billion dollars in revenue, but still had the practices or lack thereof of a company that was multiple uh, orders of magnitude smaller, uh, you know th- those things can come out of get out of control rather quickly. And so, what I would say is. Whether it's understanding now, I'll broaden the aperture a little bit further if you don't mind. Understanding who do you have and what skills do they have, and how is that evolving over time? So kind of the as is of your team, and 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 always sort of referencing how is a supply and demand of those skills uh, changing, keeping that documented and fresh as people you know take on new experiences and 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 new training and so on. Likewise with your processes and technology. What are our practices? Which ones you know fit? Where, how do they all fit together? Um, how do we simplify that over time? So again. We don't have this Baskin and Robin's uh, 31 flavors that I referenced a moment ago, which again only adds cost and and uh, uh, you know uh, cost and risk to the organization in the ways that I've described. So I think even if it's not the full blown you know kind of uh, version, the pedantic version of EA for for a, uh, a midsize or a small organization, still barring at least from the philosophical points, uh, as one grows becomes very important to make sure that you're doing so in a way that's sustainable.
0: What kind of team do you have to put together to the scale? Because I'm talking about experience and types of expertise. Seems to me that you've got to be very careful about the team you put together here.
1: Yeah, and, and absolutely critical. I referenced this necessity for learning nimbleness, that yours needs to be an organization that is uh, you know, always willing to, to cannibalize your own skills, like to, to, to borrow in a different direction what I was describing with regard to Rob Carter from FedEx. Let me return to the example of General Stanley McChrystal, that the things you learned in, in, at university, I, I read something recently that 75% of people who um, graduate from college do not use what it is that they majored in. And, and I, I frankly think that's perfectly fine. I, I always say to my, I've got the uh, you know, teenage boys, and I always say to them, you know, school is about learning to learn um, in, in a, 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 as much as it is also eventually getting to the point of perhaps developing some, some, you know, some depth in a topic that becomes your major in, at university. You need to learn to learn and, and, and really kind of develop a, a yearning to continue to do so, all the more so in this day and age because again, as just as the example from the academies in the military sense that I described earlier, likewise for all of us as we go to university, um, you know, five or ten years out, perhaps those things, especially if it's a STEM subject, for instance, that you might directly apply in a business, uh, for, just to take a, an example uh, um, uh, across disciplines, that uh, the things you learn may may become antiquated relatively quickly, and so that means. Always seeking the new, always you know understanding how is how is the business landscape changing and what are the skills I ought to be taking on in order to um, in, in order to make sure that I'm headed to where business is going as opposed to where it's been. So the answer, the specific answer to your, to your question mark, is going to differ based upon the business. You know, uh, different businesses are going to have different areas of emphasis and they'll be innovating or changing uh, at different rates. Uh, you know, I think a lot of these technical disciplines, even for non-technical people. so understanding how data and analytics works, what are the basics of that? and you know understanding the different parts and pieces so that you can even, even if it's not what you oversee, that you can enter that conversation at a higher plane uh, to help drive the decision making that's happening there. You know, understanding different disciplines like artificial intelligence, or you know, um, how is that going to impact how we're how we do things? For example, again, it doesn't need to be the area that you go get a PhD in, but becoming more conversant in the topics that are you know rising trends that are impacting almost every business. I think it's incumbent upon each of us at least to. Develop enough of a familiarity with the topics to be able to ask good questions and and uh, and also collaborate with our colleagues in a way that's going to add a, a, a greater
0: level of value. When adding new technology to a system, how do you prevent redundancy, which I hear happens quite often? And and that was something you addressed in the book.
1: Indeed, I mean. So I I think a lot of it is is that enterprise architecture point we talked about a moment ago is making sure that you have an a a clear enough understanding of what you have, hopefully in its totality, such that when you bring in something new, there is the ability to relatively quickly say, ah, that that sort of um, is redundant to this other thing that we have, this other tool, process, method, and having a, a conversation, the discipline to have those conversations to say, is it right for us to have multiple versions? Again, if you are, let's take FedEx, FedEx is an airline, it is a trucking company, it is a logistics company, it is a you know office supplies uh, company, it is a very, very diverse company. And as a result of that, you are gonna need some redund- redundant technology as it might be viewed from the outside because the application will be so different. But even in an organization like like FedEx, Rob Carter and his team have have gone through Ken Spangler, other other, uh, key executives in the tech domain of that organization have gone through the important thinking to say, okay, where is it appropriate for us to have multiple versions because of the diversity of our business, but also where are we introducing something that really... Uh, eliminates or renders truly redundant the thing that that, that we have invested in the past and let's go through the tough work to say let's retire that it's no longer relevant let's let's uh, relieve ourselves of the ongoing sort of long tail of the cost associated with that as well as help as i mentioned before de-risk the organization by having a uh you know a slim down threat landscape that the that the cyber cyber uh, cyber criminals for instance uh, can 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 penetrate let's make that a little less easy uh, for them to do so
0: uh, the cloud plays an enormous role in the lives of companies of all sizes. Really, the cloud's nothing new. It's just a good marketing twist on things that people have been doing for like ever. What's the difference between private and public clouds? And what are the determining factors for deciding whether a company should make the investment in a private cloud? Because a lot of these yeah, people so- listening are going to make, you know, their CEOs, they're having to figure, does that make sense or not?
1: Absolutely, yeah. not just yeah. the money. Uh, important, and in fact, actually, I would say that in any cloud decision, money ought to be a deciding factor, of course, but not the primary one. Uh, so many cloud technologies—you know—the the reason for a cloud transformation is based upon cost savings and oftentimes organizations are underwhelmed in terms of the delivery of that. I, I'm a big believer of the cloud, by the way. I don't mean to say that because of that, you shouldn't be pursuing it, You know, but it has to be about the speed, about the scalability, about hopefully de-risking the organization to a greater extent and having a modern architecture that is more reflective of where business is going as opposed to where it's been to, 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 to call forward a few of the themes that we've already covered in this conversation, Mark. Um, you know, The basic differences between private clouds and public clouds, a private cloud is one that is a cloud that is, is specific to your company that no other company ha- is, is, uh, sharing any, anyone, anything with, uh, whereas a public cloud, like, a you know, Amazon web services or Google's version of that, or Azure from Microsoft, you know, y- you will have a, 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 uh, uh, a, cordon, a cordoned off portion of, of their cloud, but it's one that many, many companies take advantage of. Yeah, I think increasingly, and I, 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 I worry as I, as always in answering questions like this about painting with too broad a brushstroke, um, a lot of organizations chose the private cloud route because of a desire to minimize risk. And I think for a time that was actually very legitimate. Uh, that, that you needed to make sure that there was just mi- really minimizing the opportunity that others could get into uh, the crown jewels of your organization, the data that's flowing through that cloud, for instance. and. Uh, thankfully, there have been, although you know, I, I, again, it's impossible to completely de-risk the organization. Um, the the advances made in the public by the public cloud providers have made it a lot less risky. And even the even the U.S. government, for instance, are certainly a pretty risk-averse organization, uh, is increasingly leveraging public cloud, not just private cloud. And so, different companies will come and will have different levels of risk tolerance. Will have different reasons. Uh, um, to ensure that their their information is not commingled with others, uh, and others, you know, many will come to the, the, the conclusion that the private cloud is the safest way to do so. It is, of course, going to be more more expensive as a result of of pursuing something that is uniquely yours. But uh, but I think increasingly people are also identifying that uh, the the advances made in public cloud technology is such that that makes a lot of sense for
0: them as well. A question from the audience. In this era where where there's a shortage of good talent and technology disruption is increasing, what advice will you give startups who want to be nimble and scale at the same time?
1: Yeah. So, I, look, the, the advantage a startup has is the tabula rasa. They've got the blank slate. Uh, you know, you, you, no, no, uh, a startup is going to choose, you know, 1990s technology to, to to build upon. They can use the latest and greatest methods, hire people with the latest and greatest skills. Uh, you know, leverage again modern processes and technology throughout all that they are doing, and. Uh, what I would say is, you know, take advantage of that while you can. It is, it is important, and that, that tabula rasa is an enormous source of advantage for, for a lot of organizations. What's striking, though, um, is that those companies develop legacy pretty quickly. Again, the pace of change is such that it's not that many years uh, between the introduction of a technology and potentially its, its uh, demise or, or, or loss of relevance and not sort of continuing to understand uh, where where those sorts of things are happening, where those dynamics are in play, and taking corrective action accordingly is oftentimes uh, a, a, an issue that all companies, startups included, or relatively recent you know companies started five or ten years ago uh, can face. That that the technology and practices become legacy pretty quickly, and not having that change orientation that we've talked about in multiple parts of our conversation, uh, not being having the appropriate. Hygiene and scrutiny uh, to 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 those practices and and you know continuing to modernize them as time goes on um, is is an enormous risk that even smaller organizations that are naturally more nimble uh, can face. So yeah, a lot of what I've described uh, as as the issues of some of the behemoths and some of the companies that I've I've uh, used as my example are definitively those behemoths. Um, you know it's important that the smaller organizations. Don't don't fall into the same trap and and get lulled into complacency, believing that because they are small, they will always be nimble. That is not so. And so I think you know again the themes that I talk about in my book and the twenty seven sub themes oh, underneath those those initial ones twenty seven sub themes excuse me under those initial ones uh, become that much more important for organizations to continue to pursue uh, in order to make sure that they are. They're doing things uh, appropriately. Um, uh, otherwise, you could potentially you know, significantly bear the, bear the consequences of, uh, of that uh, if that's not the case.
0: You wrote about cyber attacks, and it seems that no matter how large the organization or the amount of money spent, hackers still manage to penetrate cyber defenses. Doesn't matter if it's the CIA or who it is. W- what should companies do to mitigate risk, especially if you don't have those kind of great resources?
1: So number one, the n- number one thing that you can do is, uh, first of all, understand your domain, your portfolio. Again, there are too many organizations and not necessarily even very large ones that don't, aren't able to articulate what are all the different you know, processes and technologies. And by the way, um, external partners that we're engaged with, all of those uh, represent an expansion of the threat landscape that becomes sources of potential risk. Uh, and so, understanding your domain uh, and having appropriate uh, security hygiene a- across the those domains become in- very, very important. Um, secondly, even if you're small, there is no excuse in not having great tooling. You know, there's a lot of uh, there are security partners, many of whom are not necessarily so expensive to engage with. But it's important to understand, you know, at the various points in which there are there are threats that you've got, uh, you, you've got technology there that is assisting you in mining. Uh, and minding uh, where, where those threats might be, might be coming and giving you as much advance notice as possible. Um, you know, I, I, it is important to note, Mark, uh, and this is certainly, uh, I'm sure not lost anyone who's listening to this, that some of the greatest organizations with you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in budget uh, associated with cybersecurity still have issues. You know, you need to be right thousands and thousands, millions of times a day and the hackers just need to be right once in order to penetrate. And many of them, of course, are very, very well funded by 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 the nations that they're 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 a part of. You know, if you're in the sight of the bad actors, as as is unfortunately true, uh, and is said quite often and unfortunately true, that uh, they're likely to find a way in. So the other really important orientation associated with this mark is that it's critical that. Uh, that you also have you, you you have a path a plan once a, a, an issue arises um, too many organizations for too long had sort of a plan in place that we will have zero uh, cyber issues and gosh if you are telling them yeah, right yeah yeah you're yeah. and your customers that's possible boy you are really already heading down a path towards enormous risk and so it's important to say look let's 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 note that at some point we are going to be Uh, Under attack, what then? What is our business continuity and disaster recovery plan to get us back from that? And test those plans, and you know, find those those uh, external partners who can you know replicate cyber issues for you to understand where the holes in the battleship are, so to say, so that you can take corrective action accordingly. So it does take a a whole strategy and and a well articulated plan. It's good to have a a a framework in mind. I I talk about the NIST framework, one of several that organizations might. uh, might choose, the NIST framework developed out of the government, uh, one of the agencies of the government is one that I, I've seen a lot of organizations use and use quite well. Having that means uh, you know, sort of understanding, kind of defining the breadbasket of what it is that you're evaluating and monitoring over time becomes very important as well. So some of these basic points I think are really important to have in place no matter your size.
0: You mentioned a variety of different members of an ecosystem from which an executive might get quality information that would help you grow a business. One was peers. I, I once even had to ask a direct competitor for advice, and uh, we were just acquaintances and not friends. And the advice I asked was related to capturing a substantial client. He was taken aback by, taken by surprise, but gave me the advice, which ended up capturing a huge client, actually the biggest client we had ever had. How do, you, how do you best leverage a peer's experience, but not give them too much information that will compromise your own strategic position?
1: Well I think a key here Mark is to is in the curation. So as you think about who your peer group is, you're a you're a leader in whatever business you are in, you 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 are in one of the silos or maybe you're a chief executive officer of your organization and the, thus the ultimate leader of your business. Um, who What is who is who makes up your own personal kitchen cabinet? You may work for a business, by the way, that has a board, and maybe that's part of it as well. Uh, it's other CEOs that make up your board, and you are a CEO, and that becomes the, a peer group that you can leverage. But I think even in those cases, it's important to have the kitchen cabinet, the informal board, if you will, personally, uh, people who you trust, who you can turn to among your peer group to ask a question because so much rhymes in business. You know, I've certainly found this as somebody who runs a business myself, that it's enormously helpful for me to speak with people who, have, who operate or run businesses that rhyme with my own and um, develop enough of a trusting relationship and also recognizing, this is why I say it's in the curation. Recognizing who do I trust, right? And who who am I? Uh, who am I developing the kind of relationship where I can open up the kimono a little bit further into some of the things that are my insecurities or issues that I'm worried about in with my business or in the business landscape, and bandy that about to some productive end. Um, and so. You know, having good, a good filter uh, as to who are the people who are truly worthy of that kitchen cabinet, that personal board becomes an important aspect of this, casting that widely, but then winnowing it down to a, a group of, you know, a, a smaller group of people to whom you can turn uh, when you want to validate a hypothesis, when you want to talk about an opportunity you're pursuing to kind of test the, t- t- test the reasons behind that. And certainly, of course, when there's an issue uh, that you're facing where some quick uh, advice from multiple people might be useful to you. Uh, curating that group effectively, continuing to mine, mine it, and you know having people sort of uh, flow in and out as a result of some of the conclusions you might draw becomes an important aspect of that, uh, that process of the ecosystem.
0: So we have time for just a couple more questions here. One area you felt could provide significant insights were venture capitalists who, depending on the fund, have deep expertise in specific areas along with seeing the newest concepts. How do you reach out to VCs to get their insights when they're typically only interested in meeting with the company leaders that would be interested in taking their money?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I will um, uh, politely push back on the last part of your question. Uh, yes, sure. a, lot of the me- a, lot, a lot of the meetings uh, that they're taking, of course, are with startups who they may invest in. But boy, if it's a venture capital f- a firm who uh, invests, for example, in enterprise technology, well, gosh, getting to know the people who would be the buyers of the products and services of the firms that you are investing in becomes incredibly important. And in fact, in their cases, they have a tremendous hunger and thirst to get to know the kinds of personas who would be the buyers. In many cases, these are the technology, the same technology and digital leaders that I've been referencing through this conversation, even earlier in the funnel of their own decision process. You know, let's take security for a moment; that they're they have some hypotheses that they want to validate in terms of where they should be investing. As of course, there are many, many different parts of Of security. Well, gosh, one of the greatest things they could do is in fact reach out to people at enterprises to say, are these issues you're actually facing? Is this something that if you, you know, if if there were a great solution, you would invest in? That's that in some ways could help them with the go-no-go decision uh, whether to invest in the first place, to say nothing of again, perhaps brokering some relationships between the you know portfolio companies they've invested in and the would-be buyers of the products and services that they offer. So this is something that I think is really it's been profound for me. The um, the symbiosis between the technology and digital divisions of, of corporations and VCs who invest in enterprise technology. and Each of them, I think, need to get uh, uh, tighter and tighter relationships because there is so much value in that, in that uh, combination. You mentioned quite appropriately uh, that the digital and technology leaders and leaders more generally speaking, I believe across uh, organizations can gain mightily to understand where smart money is being spent and why. Um, but likewise, those same VCs are hungry for the insights that those same leaders from enterprises can provide to, again, help them validate or the hypotheses they have about, uh, you know, swim lanes they're investing in, uh, as well as to, to, to help the, the portfolio companies they already have invested in to help shape the products and services that they're, they're uh, bringing to bear. Many of them are putting together, in fact, even advisory uh, boards of people from larger organizations to work with some of these entrepreneurs to to tighten their messages to you know adjust their products to make them more relevant to a to 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 would be buyers of it and so on. So yes, I, I I the short answer is I think there's just tremendous value in this combination. And for those you know business leaders who don't recognize it, I would say be bold. Uh, you know, reach out to some of these very VCs. And introduce yourself and, and uh, some of the reasons why you'd like to get to know them better. And I, I think many people would be pleasantly surprised as to the uh, yield on some of those invitations for, for, for a conversation.
0: All right. So this is my last question. You mentioned that you like to ask people, you interview about the trends they see. So now I want to ask that question to you. What, do you, what are the trends you're seeing?
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Very, very well played. Uh, so, I, yes, gosh, there, there are so many of them. Of course, I think I, I referenced a couple of them already. Artificial intelligence, I think, is a profound trend, a technology trend that is going to change so much of what we do. Mind you, AI is something that's been around for so long. It's a, one of those things where I think we're, we constantly think of it as a future topic, not recognizing that Siri is artificial intelligence, right? I mean, uh, all sorts of tools that we use uh, through the internet that provides us quick quick guidance or counsel on a variety of things represent uh, artificial intelligence. So much of what Google does is powered by AI uh, or a, you know the, the various algorithms that are, whether it's Netflix and making recommendations or Amazon that providing recommendations on the other thing to buy as a add-on to the thing we're already shopping for, all of that powered by AI. You know The advances in AI are going to mean that the, uh, the plane at which uh, humans interact with uh, decisions should, should optimally be, get higher up. And that's, that's in some ways a very good thing. It means we, we can focus on the, the more interesting things while the technology takes care of the more mundane things. Of course, it gets back to this necessity for a learning nimbleness uh, uh, for, for people as some of the things that perhaps are the, 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 the keystones of what they do within companies may, may be skills that are going away. And so the providing opportunities for our people to continue to train and, and get, to, get to know the technologies of the future, new skills for the future become that much more important along the way as well. You know, I would say another one, which again has been a, a, a theme that's a thread through this conversation is is this whole notion of learning nimbleness. That the ways in which we foster that across companies, the best companies of all are the ones who are constantly reinventing themselves and developing, you know, curricula within your organization to help you know, push your entire company along uh, to get to, to future destinations as opposed to resting on the laurels of the past is an exciting area that can now be powered by the way with all kinds of, of powerful tools that can be accessed relatively cheaply. It doesn't necessar- necessarily require, you know, two years of a grad degree, uh, in order to develop some of these skills, you can do it while you're on the job and, you know, through all sorts of really powerful courses that are delivered through many of these massive open online courses. I think that this is really exciting and very interesting. And hopefully, you know, in some ways, this is also the, uh, you know, uh, what, what makes our, our lives and our jobs that much more interesting at the same time as well. So those are a couple that I, I would call out as as trends that I'm hearing you know, again and again, as I speak with business executives as areas that they're excited about, but also realize they need to kind of wrestle with uh, in, order to, um, in order to understand the implications back to their enterprises.
0: Peter, it's been a fast hour. I thoroughly enjoyed you and the book. And uh, I need to probably get a couple of your other books and maybe have you back again. So you'll have to send me your other books. I'd be delighted. Uh, if you still find them to be timely. Uh, I wish you the best with this new book, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Everybody, thank you for tuning in today, and we're only two shows away from a hundred. So, uh, again, thanks for helping us get there, Peter. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. Be safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at twelve PM Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.